Was there an Adam? Was there an Eve? Or did we evolve from what we conceived? Either way, we got what we needed when the sun shone down on the Garden of Eden. Thank you, thank you so much. Uh, uh, but that, that gives us a, a one hour package for our, our progressive radio network, that's good. So we'll have two separate packages here. Uh, Susan Pinchon, real quick. If you have questions, anyone else? We have 63 people. This must be the only Zoom in the world where more people come in, the longer it goes. Um, uh, Susan Pinchon, did you wanna jump in from Florida with a word? Yes. Hi, Harvey, thanks so much for this list. I just wanted to quickly offer a couple ideas to supplement your list. Um, one is that there are some states now where people have lost their private vote. North Carolina being a, a prime example of that, they actually put an ID on the ballots that identify the voters. And so I'd like to just add that I think about adding something about that. There are a couple other states that do that also. The second thing is, you know, in 2008, I won an award from the Florida ACLU along with three other activists for helping to bring paper ballots to Florida, handmark paper ballots. In 2019, Florida reversed that. They now allow ballot marking devices for all voters. It was unfortunately assisted by verified voting, as they said, a promise to the voters in the disability community. This is a red herring. Voters with disabilities, I've had personal experience with this when they understand that they are being scammed. Um, we could save this for another call, but the voting machine companies have purposely made ballots for voters with disabilities a different size ballot than voters, regular voters, knowing that there would be discrimination suits. This has been going on since at least 2004, this discrimination thing. They continue to do it. It's we're having now a reverse effect. Maryland has gone from all handmarked paper ballots now to about a third of the state is ballot marking devices because of a lawsuit by the National Federation of the Blind. So we have to fight the myths about um, there are ways to solve the discrimination problem. Again, we could save that for another program. Um, I've been personally involved in these fights and I know how to win them. But we, we're the country, these ballot marking devices are pretty much as bad as the touchscreen machines. They do have something that can be scanned and the images can be read. However, when you examine, it's really no different than a touchscreen machine with a, with a flawed verified the VV path, the verified voter paper trail. It's just that now they scan that, but the accuracy is still hugely in question. And then just two more quick things. Um, we must stop the destruction of ballot images. It's happening in Florida. It's happening all around the country. These, as Ray's just mentioned, are a critical, critical audit device. It's not the it's not the only audit device, but it's a tremendous, tremendous supplement. And we need to have those ballot images. I wish to hell I had the ballot images from Florida from this past election because it would show us so much. 
and then I can say hell on this program, can I? Sorry, <laughs> I know there's no swearing, but I think that's pretty mild. Well, and then the if you want to curse, uh, please revert to Yiddish. But oh, go ahead. Okay. The, the very last point, Harvey, I know we're a little pressed for time, but um, is, and this leads into John Brakey, is the fight for transparency. What's happened is election offices around the country have used the fact that the election deniers have asked for millions of records to, to, to put up a front of no records available. So they're, they're, in other words, they're denying public records based on the idea that they're being attacked by these people with too many public records requests. And this leads into John's lawsuit, which is a tremendous, I just wanna say one thing about Audit USA. In two cases now, in North Carolina and in Arizona, they have fought one Lynn Bernstein's case that John was also involved in, and now this case in Santa Cruz, and won um, against absolutely draconian efforts to stifle transparency. So with that, I will turn it back over to you. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you, Susan. Another stalwart here. Uh, so we have covered the, uh, the basic agenda. We're into our second recording. I know we're joined by the great Linda Gunter. We are going to talk at the end of this particular hour uh, about nuclear power and the, the insanity that fusion uh, has intervened. And Linda Gunter is a great, great expert on all this. We're now up to 64 people. Um, um, but uh, the first hour that we did, which was cut off at, at, at where it should have been, uh, that is now a, a, our our document of record on our overview of what we're gonna do going through 24. So I will send out that link if anybody wants to inquire on the nature of our work, uh, that's the link to go to. It will be transcribed and it'll be available as our template as we move forward. The two pillars of our work are basically universal, as Susan just laid out, universal handmarked digitally scanned uh, audited paper ballots uh, combined with uh, the, the move of all progressive money to grassroots campaigning and away from the political parties and uh, what Ray McClendon has called the, um, uh, the um, uh, consultant class. So there you go. Thank you everybody for being patient with all that. I hope uh, it didn't put everybody to sleep, but we now have our journal of record. And by the way, uh, we will not be meeting for the next two weeks. Uh, next week, next Monday is the day after Christmas and then the, the day after New, uh, 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 New Year's uh, Day. So uh, we will next meet on, I believe it's January 7th, uh, the first uh, uh, Monday in, uh, in the new year after uh, the first Monday. So uh, the next two weeks we have off, uh, revive your brain cells. And just for those of you who are interested, and I know most of you won't do this, but anybody who happens to go out and party on New Year's Eve, uh, that's my birthday. So you will be celebrating my 77th birthday on New Year's Eve. I did get my father a tax deduction. Uh, so you, know, you, can sell, you can drink up what my father saved on his taxes on New Year's Eve, okay? Does anyone wanna jump in before we go? Uh, to John Brakey's great victory dance here. Does anybody want to say anything 
about this um, uh, uh, this list of, of of our essentials. Um, anybody? Do we need to wake anybody up who fell asleep during the litany? Okay. Uh, all right, uh, Jeff, uh, uh, Tatanka and Howie, go ahead, and then Jeffrey, go ahead. Tatanka, Howie. Oh, um, Jeff, you're you're muted. Hold on, Howie, are you muted? No. No. You want me to go? Yeah, go ahead and then Tatanka. Um, I think given what you said about not having corporate money, we should call for full public campaign financing where you don't use private money at all. Actually, if you go back to Joe Biden's uh, presidential platform from his campaign website, he actually called for that. And I don't know how that stayed in there because it's a legacy from the 90s when we were calling for full public campaign financing instead of this matching fund system. Oh yeah. In any okay. case, attached to that should be, uh, you have to, to get the money, you have to participate in a publicly sponsored debate. They do that at the state level in Arizona where they have a public campaign financing system. That could go national. So that, that opens the discussion to all the candidates to qualify for the public funding. Excellent point. So what we should do, the next meeting, by the way, is January 9th. Someone texted me, uh, David Stump, thank you. January 9th will be our next meeting. So we'll be off the next two weeks. Let's add, I'll add that, that when, and when we come back on January 9th, let's discuss it. If anybody objects or wants to um, elaborate on any of the points in the 20 or so that I put out there, please email me and we will deal with it on January 9th. We'll see if we need to refine this actual list. And by the way, just for your eye-rolling information, the four Supreme Court de decisions that screwed us on um, uh, public financing and limiting corporate money are the Buckley decision, the Bellotti decision, which was written by Lewis Powell, the great villain in all this, uh, the Citizens United, which is the most recent, and, also, and, and then the McCutcheon. So there are four Supreme Court decisions that we need to get rid of in order to get money out of politics. Uh, to talk at Jeffrey, and then we go to the John yeah. Brady. I just wanted to thank you, Harvey, for the uh, roadmap list, and also thank you the people who contributed that will talk in the new year whether it needs to be added. Thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, um, uh, and we're going to get to energy, California. Uh, we're going to do the uh, Trump indictments, hopefully, then uh, after John Brady, and then the energy in California, and, uh, and we'll have Lindy Gunter on for that. Uh, Jeffrey, very quickly, please. Now, I don't know if this idea is very smart or very, or very stupid, sorry, sorry if I say that, but what, about, what if we combine like ranked choice voting with start with start choice voting, if you know what well, I mean? Create, to, create, that's create, a good create, point. I don't know what start choice voting is, so we need to discuss that on January 9th. Howie, if you'll come back with the, to talk to us about start choice voting, that would be really good, okay? Because uh, I, I actually didn't know about it, and, and I, I haven't known that much about ranked choice, but Anything to get help get rid of Sarah Palin uh, is fine with me. Okay, um, um, let's now, we get to do a victory dance here. Um, um, uh, John Brakey, our, our, one of our great pioneers and leaders uh, in election protection, we have 63 people on the call, by the way. Uh, uh, John Brakey won a major court decision this morning. Uh, John, you wanna tell us about it? Well, it was uh, definitely a great day for we the people. Okay, this was a court case where after I had come back from North Carolina and we we're getting ready to have our primary, 
I had to make a decision what county that I was going to do in because you always find me in one county or other. So I choose Santa Cruz because I was invited in. They've been trying me to get me to go back for years. Well, anyway, I went into that county and I filed a records request. Basically, I was assaulted twice down there by politicians, uh, surrounded by police, threatened, forced to destroy public records of pictures I was taking while looking through a window at an election department that was broadcasting because they were trying to intimidate me. And, uh, and then uh, at the end, I filed a records request was filed. They said they were going to give me these records on August 18th. They gave me two out of the six records and they filed a lawsuit against me for filing a records request. Well, today in court, the, we had filed a motion to dismiss and the judge unloaded on him. And, uh, and the judge said, what are you doing in my court? This is a case that should have been in Santa Cruz County. And then he chastised him and said, and what are you doing suing a public records request requester? That is their right to request. You do not sue them. You are supposed to provide them with a solid reason why they should not have it. And it's their right to sue you. Basically, what he was saying is, we don't live in the Soviet Union and you do not bite the hand that feeds you. And that is the people who are in charge in this country. So it was a really great day to have that kind of a decision come down. And then knowing that, you know, in my next case, January 4th, is in the appellate courts of Maricopa or of Arizona, where we are waiting for a final decision to get all of the ballot images from the Maricopa audit and to set a standard and to prove in our state that the actual act of voting is the secret process and counting is a public process and that these ballot images are a public record. And basically, we think that by uh, also January 10th, Ken Bennett resubmits our bill back into the House and Senate as a sitting senator who is the vice chair of the election commission in the Senate. I mean, we're sitting in really good situation by April. Our goal is to start a national uh, campaign to show other states that how Arizona can do their elections and make them transparent, trackable, publicly verified with a ballot library to, in order to prove to the losers that they really lost, which is an important part, elections that we can all believe in. And by achieving this, I believe more people will vote. I think that more people will take elections seriously. I think that maybe we'll get better candidates because we can prove that the elections are real. Right. Well, as Mark Twain said, if God had wanted us to vote, he would have given us candidates. So, um, uh, John, this is- We also said if voting made a difference, they wouldn't let us do it. Well, we got to prove it. It does make a difference. So We're going to take away their impunity to steal. So in combination with the grassroots, campaigning focus in Georgia uh, from, and from you and Ray Lutz and Susan and so many others, we're getting a model of how elections should be won from Arizona. And I just want to yes. say, 
how, how dare you ask for public records? I mean, really. So uh, yeah. that we want to uh, applaud that judge. Um, uh, what was the name of the judge? Oh my God, uh, he, you know, he was the same judge that did the cases in Cochise County and he's becoming an election judge. Uh, I, I just can't think of it. My mind's gone blank. It begins with a Q. Roy Bean. His name was Roy Bean. Uh, whatever, okay. yeah. Good, I'll, I'll get it. Not okay, does anybody want to jump in uh, on this? Uh, Susan Pinchon again. This has been yes. spectacular. Thank you so much. And Susan, go ahead, please. Anybody else? Quickly raise your hand because we're gonna next talk about something really entertaining, which is the January 6th report on indicting Trump. And then we're gonna go to our energy issues. Uh, but thank you, John. Congratulations on that victory. Fantastic. Okay. Um, yes, yes, I quickly wanted to mention that John didn't mention it, that he just had another big victory a little over a week ago in North Carolina where he and Lynn Bernstein went to the Wake County, largest county in North Carolina, uh, the Wake County Elections Office to see where they could hold a protest on election night um, because the Wake County Elections Director does not allow observers on election night where most or all of the other counties in North Carolina do. So they were outside the elections office and the director had them trespassed and what that means is that passed in North Carolina, <clears throat> they simply tell you that if you ever show your face there again, you will be arrested for criminal trespass. So yeah. here's Lynn, a tremendous advocate and activist, now being told that she can never go to the elections office again, can't attend any meetings, can't <clears throat> even show up there to vote. And uh, because she was standing outside the election office. So, so it went to court and they won. They won and the judge again lambasted the elections director basically saying that it was retribution because he didn't like the fact that Lynn was watching what they're doing and reporting on it to people and helping to make very positive changes. So I just wanted to mention that, that Audit USA is walking the walk, just like pretty much everyone on this call, but it's a two fantastic victories. And thank you, John Brakey, and thank you, Audit USA. Well, thank you. And of course you referred to showing your face again. I think there are other parts of our anatomies that we could show them that would be more appropriate, but we won't go into that. Um, uh, does anyone else want, thank you, Susan. Again, congratulations, John. Anybody else want to, well, I just want to add one thing is that there's a part two to this is that now they're required to give me these records and and because of what they did to me I will be possibly filing a civil rights suit in my name for we the people not for me I'm going to I'm going to sue them for me as a civil right because of what they did these people brought me in to find out these questions I'm not done fixing Santa Cruz County. It's not going to be fixed until they put together an election integrity commission made up of different parts of the community that have tremendous oversight over the elections to see what's going on. I did that in Pima County 17 years ago and look where it has developed for a whole state. 
Well, it's amazing, truly amazing. It is, and this is the model that we want to use. You know, I'm not asking people to join my group. I want to. I want them to think like Margaret Mead and remember what she said: a few committed citizens can change the world. In fact, it's the only thing it ever has. But I swear to God, if we form a committee, we're screwed. You know, <laughs> uh, we need to find the funding. We need to be able to have lawyers who understand the geek Greek language of elections. That's what we're training with Chris Sauter and our relationship with attorneys all over the country. That we can go in there and we can be brain surgeons when it comes to elections. We don't need plumbers in there working on elections. We need people who understand the laws who are specialists. And that's where the failure happens a lot when charlatans and grifters come in and they start charging in. I mean, this is this whole thing, the problems with elections may be complicated, but God damn it, the solutions are simple. It's called transparency because transparency is the currency of trust. And All without right. it, our democracy will die in darkness. So I urge everybody to understand all of this because it is simple. So in the, in the new year, we're gonna put out a document with all these points. We will underline uh, in great detail how to do the grassroots campaigning and how to do the yes. of auditing and, and uh, records requests that John and, and Susan and Ray and so many others have done. This is fantastic. Does anybody else want to jump in? I want to welcome my buddies from Michigan, Dave Saltman, Lisa Matros is with us. Uh, Carl Grossman is with us, with us from Long Island. We're going to move now. I've got on my other screen the hand up of the New York, of the New York Times. Tatanka, go ahead. Just very quickly, thank you so much for that in Santa Cruz, uh, John. Because if that commission that you want to form had been in place. The two progressive candidates four or five years ago that came in and were taken out by a dirty money recall campaign, they would have had some place to go. They got away with calling these amazing people convicted sexual predators. It was just gross. And it was about $450,000 that LA and Silicon Valley real estate money that I'm convinced is uh, Blackstone money because they target they target uh, candidates, progressive candidates around the country with these kinds of recall elections. It's outrageous, outrageous. Okay, I think we've made a great leap forward here. Um, um, there, I can assure you again that we have made a difference, certainly dating from four to 2000 and Ohio 2004, and we want 2024. I would have to say that as a historian, the elections of 2018, 2020, and 2022 probably the fairest and most accurate in all of U.S. history. And, and only because of the presence of paper ballots, which would never have happened without the election protection movement. So but the failure was they didn't give live up to the transparent part of the responsibility and they shut people out, right. which so only now, created more cynicism for the grifters to work with. So now we got to make sure the 24, we all know what the stakes are. We need the, the biggest turnout percentage-wise in all of U.S. history, especially among young people. And we need the, the, the most uh, 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 transparent and, and attractable election that's ever happened. So that's our goal going forward. Uh, thank you all very much. We're up, to, we keep, we're up at 66 people now. It's great to have everybody. I want to jump in. I'm looking at the front page of the New York Times. The headline is January 6th panel. And we're going to do energy after this. 
Uh, we'll do a few minutes here, and then we have Carl and uh, Linda. We want to talk about fusion and also what's going on in California. Uh, but um, uh, Jen, here's a here's a, a headline that we uh, many many people have been waiting for for quite a while. January sixth panel backs for count them for didn't say count them uh, uh, criminal referrals against Trump. There you go. And remember that we did have a lot of this was read to the, the world uh, by Jamie Raskin, uh, who's been on our calls. By the way, I was at a um, gathering over the weekend where there are three Congress people. Hopefully uh, we'll have at least uh, one or two of them, Corey Bush uh, from Missouri, uh, um, uh, Gomez um, uh, uh, from, and, and also um, Sydney, I can't remember her last name, a new Congresswoman all from LA, uh, both from LA. So hopefully we'll have more Congress people on, but January 6th panel backs four criminal referrals against Trump. And um, this has never happened before in US history. Uh, do we, it is not guaranteed that the, um, uh, the Justice Department will follow through and do these indictments, but uh, there you go. There you have it. Does anybody want to celebrate or make uh, comments on this? Uh, this is uh, nonpartisan. Donald Trump is a private citizen, uh, at least for a while, uh, before he skips out to wherever he's going to go. Uh, but um, maybe uh, Florida will secede and he'll become, uh, well, he's got a problem there, doesn't he? Does anybody want to comment on this, on these four uh, uh, criminal referrals? It is uh, absolutely unprecedented in American history. Could, couldn't happen to a nicer guy. They're running a testimony from a woman named Hope Hicks. Um, I'm not sure why, but um, Susan, you're a, a neighbor of Trump's down there in Mar-a-Lago. I'm sure you've had dinner there many times. Um, uh, you've got your hand up. What do you, how would you like to comment? Susan Pinchon, go ahead. Yeah, sorry, I was muted, Harvey. Yeah, no. Um, there's actually another charge that's in their 160 page report. They mentioned it on NPR. They did not mention it for some reason in the hearing, but in their 160 page report, they also mentioned for Trump's seditious conspiracy. So whether they are or not, it's in their written report. So just wanted to add number five. Seditious conspiracy, they left that out of the, of the big four? Well, when they, I don't know why it's in the, I have not seen the written report. The NPR reporter had stayed up till four o'clock this morning reading an embargoed copy of it. And she said that in that report, which we will all get to see in a few days, that it also has a charge of seditious conspiracy against Trump. Well, they did convict one of the Proud Boys, I believe. Of Oathkeeper. Oathkeeper. Oathkeeper of, uh, <laughs> of seditious something. I assume yes, it was conspiracy. Yes, that's right. That's right. So, so we'll just have to wait and see. But just, I just wanted to mention that in addition to those four, I wanted to call them delightful, but of course it's shocking <laughs> and, and everything else. But there's a fifth one, poss possibly. Okay. Well, there you go. Our, our own Jamie Raskin. Uh, I was spelling when he was reading it to, to the public, uh, but he has been on this call and he's the one who read a lot of it, Zoe Lofgren, uh, who's from California, has been reading also. It says here in the article, 
The committee's referrals do not carry legal weight or compel any action by the Justice Department, which is conducting its own investigation into January 6th and the actions of Mr. Trump and his allies leading up to the attack. But the referrals send a powerful signal that a bipartisan committee of Congress believes the former president committed crimes. Of 17 specific findings in the report, 15 center on Mr. Trump's role in the plotting and the resulting chaos. I don't know, it couldn't be clearer. So I guess we'll be following this as we move forward. Um, does anybody else want to comment before we move ahead? Okay, well, listen, <laughs> it's a happy day. And it's the first time, as I say, that this has ever happened. Um, uh, um, uh, Milo Reason, Milo, you raised your hand, go ahead. So I, I was slow to raise my hand, but I watched it and I was spelling too. And I and I'm wondering. That's our boy, is, our Jamie. <laughs> is, is it possible for you to play a little bit of uh, Raskin? Because I, you know, I've seen him speak many times, but this was the mo he was at his most powerful, his peak powerful. It was so persuasive and so extraordinary. And thank you, uh, Stephen. Um, but but if we could get to Jamie Raskin or oh I see those little dots down at the bottom just below the image might be the way to oh well well I do want to I do want to jump in if you can do it Steve let me know uh, but uh, um, like I say this goes back out on the radio so I'm not sure uh, how much back but yeah we can oh that's public yeah yeah if you want we can play a couple but minutes. Stephen, but we do. We're, we're getting. Uh, we're waiting to to listen to um, Linda Gunter. Yeah, oh, good. With experts for violations of this statute, the whole purpose and obvious effect of Trump's scheme were to obstruct, influence, and impede this official proceeding, the central moment for the lawful transfer of power in the United States. We believe that the evidence described by my colleagues today and assembled throughout our hearings warrants a criminal referral of former President Donald J. Trump, John Eastman, and others for violations of this statute. The whole purpose and obvious effect of Trump's scheme were to obstruct, influence, and impede this official proceeding the central moment for the lawful transfer of power in the United States. We believe that the evidence described by my colleagues today and assembled throughout our hearings warrants a criminal referral of former okay. President Donald J. We got it. We got it. Okay, great. Well, actually, that was a good idea. Very good, Milo. Thank you. Uh, again, that was Jamie. Uh, I, I'd like to know where he got that suit. It looks like they're just still working on it. But nonetheless, um, uh, <laughs> it was great to see that. Thank you, Amira, for that suggestion. Okay, um, um, can we, we need to move on now to uh, the issues of uh, energy. And uh, we've had in the past week, um, what I consider an insane announcement about fusion energy, giving everybody the impression that this is a viable alternative, uh, bringing down the, the the power of the sun 
onto the, pla the planet Earth. Linda Gunther and Paul, uh, I'm sorry, um, uh, Carl Grossman are both uh, world experts on energy. And we've also had a situation now in California where we have the state of California, the assembly has now voted to force everyone in California, even if they don't, if they're not in the PG&E territory, to pay for Diablo Canyon nuclear, and then turn around and slash the net metering payments for rooftop solar. It is the definition of insanity in trying to uh, deal with the climate crisis. So Linda, and I'm sure you'll have updates for us on Zaporizhia and what's going on in Ukraine as well. Linda Gunter uh, is a great uh, global journalist and an expert on, uh, with uh, nuclear, uh, beyond nuclear. And Carl is in, in, uh, has been a major mainstay of the nuclear uh, movement for all these years. We have 65 people on the call and a half hour to go. So Linda, go ahead, please. Well, thanks, Harvey. And first of all, not to disappoint you, but Jamie Raskin is my congressman. <laughs> so I claim him. <laughs> oh, well, we can, we'll have shared custody. Yeah, okay. Not only is he our congressman, he's also our neighbor. And so uh, we mostly see him around the corner walking his dogs in his sweatpants with his baseball hat on backwards. So he's unbelievably accessible as well as being brilliant. So we're very proud of Jamie and all he's achieved um, these last many years. Um, the fusion announcement you probably all saw, I mean, it, what, what really sort of shocked me in a way, well, in a way it doesn't shock me because I'm quite cynical about the media, was the incredible amount of, you know, fanfare-ish headlines about something that has, you know, absolutely no practical application to climate change or energy uh, production at all. It's only, it's really only about two things. One is it's about the nuclear weapons sector and it allows them to test actually nuclear weapons without blowing nuclear weapons up. And that's the real agenda for the whole project. And the other is it's a great big competition between Lawrence Livermore, MIT, Princeton, the European consortium with their debacle of a tokamak reactor in Kadarash called ITER, which has been going on for decades and is likely to cost $65 billion if it ever comes to fruition. So it's all about funding and so they have to make the most noise possible whenever there's even a sort of sliver of a so-called breakthrough, because this is going to guarantee them more hundreds of millions of dollars to continue tinkering with fusion. Whereas, as you know, Harvey, perfectly well, given the name of your whole shtick, you know, solar topia, is that we, we already have fusion energy. It's up there in the sky. It's that 93 million miles away. And we could harness the power of the sun. We are harnessing the power of the sun, but we could do it a lot better and a lot faster if we weren't pouring billions of dollars in to make, you know, physicists happy. I mean, I'm the daughter of a nuclear physicist who thought that, you know, who worked on control fusion and said it has absolutely no practicable application whatsoever, neither fusion nor fission. Uh, first of all, it's always been decades away and it remains decades away. You know, what they achieved was a sort of several nanoseconds you know, of gain uh, at vast cost. And in fact, if you count the megajoules that had to be put in for those 90, 192 lasers, it, it wasn't really a, a net gain anyway. But even if they ever crack this, it will be 
decades in the future, by then we'll have had to have done the right thing or we won't be here. And the right thing is not going to be depending on massive, you know, centralized energy production. It will be decentralized, it'll be renewable, it'll be energy efficiency and conservation if we do it in time. You know, otherwise in several decades, life as we know it won't be what it is today. So I, I think it's disappointing to be, see people like Chuck Schumer, you know, come out and say it's an astonishing scientific advance that puts us on the precipice of a future no longer reliant on fossil fuels. I mean, what is he smoking? I mean, that, you know, he must know better. Uh, and if so, why would you tell the public something so profoundly misleading? You know, it has absolutely nothing to do with that whatsoever. It's all about the bomb. And so um, we've been pushing back on that uh, mightily, as has Carl, you know, in, in all the outlets that we can feed to, including our own, beyondnuclearinternational.org, where we have, I think, four articles now <laughs> up there. Uh, and also one I'd refer you to from before by Daniel Jasby, which is a really good takedown of, of the myths of fusion. But now we've got this breaking news. We have four articles really talking about the, the phenomenal costs and, and the ridiculous amount of time this has already taken, and the fact that it has no commercial application whatsoever to uh, the generation of electricity. Well, my understanding is that if they ever did what they say they want to do and build a fusion reactor that would generate electric power, it would burn at 100 million degrees. And, you know, you ask, well, what could go wrong? <laughs> I mean, come on, you know, you people are out of your minds. Uh, it's insane and it was annoying. But, uh, you know, as, as you say, Linda, it's got no commercial application. Um, and Carl, you've been dealing with this forever. Carl Grossman is in Long Island. Linda, as you ascertained, as you gathered, is in the suburbs of uh, Washington, D.C. and uh, Tacoma Park, Maryland. Uh, 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 Carl, um, uh, what's your take on this fusion stuff? Wait, 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 you're muted. You're muted somehow. Wait, hold on. Uh, Steve, can we unmute Carl? Do, do you have to unmute yourself? Uh, well, there you go. Uh, I actually wrote about fusion um, in my first book on nuclear power, cover up what you're not supposed to know about nuclear power and its relationship to the hydrogen bomb. Um, as the laboratory which is doing these experiments, Lawrence Livermore is all about the hydrogen bomb. I mean, uh, what ultimately happened there was Edward Teller was given his own laboratory to develop what he called uh, what Teller called the super. And it, it comes out of this, this weapons laboratory. And as Linda just explained, uh, very, very tied to, uh, to nuclear weaponry. Uh, my piece ran my first piece on this, and I'm doing more. This is Counterpunch uh, this weekend. Uh, and the, the headline is uh, Fusion Really. And I quote extensively uh, from the article done uh, this is five years ago in um, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists uh, by, and, and Linda just mentioned the physicist's name, Daniel Jasby, who for 25 years worked at Princeton Plasma Physics Laboratory on fusion energy 
research and development. And as he declares in his article, fusion, now this is a, this is a fusion scientist retired and uh, developing a, obviously an epiphany. Fusion power is something to be shunned. The article was headed uh, fusion reactor, not what they're cracked out to be. And I thought very important, particularly for people involved in the anti-nuclear movement, is where he talks about uh, when fusion occurs on the sun, ordinary hydrogen at enormous density and temperature is involved. But here on Earth, fusion reactors would burn neutron-rich isotopes, byproducts that are anything but harmless. A key radioactive substance in the fusion process on Earth would be tritium, a radioactive variant of hydrogen. So uh, you're talking about nuclear pollution. You're talking about nuclear dangers. Uh, and um, uh, you're talking about a diversion, as Linda just noted, uh, of, of support for, um, for solar and wind and geo and all the safe green technologies that we can live with. Fusion is a, um, uh, on so many levels, someplace not to go. Right. And uh, there's a piece um, in the, uh, the Guardian. It's number one on Google here uh, by a guy named De Mark Diesendorf. Um, um, uh, uh, which is laying out some of this craziness. So uh, anybody that thought we were going to go down the fusion road, it's, it's, it's insane. Uh, it's completely uneconomical. Every, every 10 years, they announce uh, breathlessly that it's another 10 years away. And um, let's keep it at least where it belongs is 93 million miles away. The other thing we want to get into very, if we can, and I want to remind everybody again, we meet again, Jim, January 9th, so we're off next the next two weeks. Um, we, and we, we should really uh, take in what we've accomplished uh, with these calls and uh, with this movement uh, for election protection as well uh, as renewable energy. Uh, I think Linda and Carl are well aware that in 1974, Richard Nixon uh, got on national TV in the middle of the Arab oil embargo and announced that there would be a thousand atomic react, commercial atomic reactors in the United States by the year 2000. And thanks to the no news movement in the year 2000, there are only 104. It's 104 too many. We're down to 92 right now, although two more about, the last two are about to come out in Georgia. Uh, Linda, you are a great international journalist. Can you uh, update us if, if, uh, on the latest from Zaporizhia and the, 15 uh, reactors in Ukraine that have everybody terrified in the middle of a war. And then I want to talk about California. Yeah, well, I don't think anything dramatically different has happened. I mean, what, what seems to happen is history, or not really history, but the events keep repeating themselves, which is that there are 15 reactors in Ukraine. The big one is the Zaporizhia one, which is what we're hearing about mostly, partly because it's six reactors. So it's actually the biggest nuclear power plant in Europe, not just in Ukraine. And also because it's embroiled now in the occupied territory. You know, this is part of the area that Putin has claimed, has reclaimed and re-annexed, or so he says. Um, and so it's very, very close to the fighting and has lost uh, access to the power grid uh, frequently. And this, you know, there are a number of concerns about what could happen in Ukraine. It's not just the worst possible scenario, which is there's a massive some sort of bombardment in which 
everything gets breached and released, which would be a catastrophe of monumental proportions with that amount of radioactivity getting out. But it could also be something as straightforward as just loss of offsite and then on-site power. You know, once the power plant loses access to the grid, uh, it has to rely on backup diesel generators and diesel generators can break down and they don't necessarily run forever. You have to have access to diesel as well. So it's a perpetually frightening situation that uh, something could go very badly wrong there alongside the fact that you've got a workforce that by all accounts is diminished dramatically. Uh, people are not returning to work. They're, if they are there, they're under extreme conditions of stress, which we know from seeing what happened at Three Mile Island at Chernobyl, that human error can also be the cause that precipitates a meltdown. So even if it escapes the bombardments and the shelling, uh, the fact that it doesn't have access to power a lot of the time and they're constantly struggling to restore it with backup power lines and so forth is a really, really frightening prospect. So there's been efforts to figure out like what to do, but the trouble is that the lead on that is the International Atomic Energy Agency, which is extremely conflicted because its other agenda is to promote the continued and expanded use of nuclear power. So while you have its chief, Rafael Grossi, on the one hand saying, you know, we can't have nuclear power plants in war zones, this is playing with fire, you've all got to stop fighting, we've got to have a no fire zone around here. On the other hand, he was at COP27 in Egypt, promoting the continued and expanded use of nuclear energy around the world. So um, there's yeah. efforts afoot now, um, well beyond war and others to try and bring like citizen, unarmed citizen protection units over there, if the Russians will allow it to try to you know, insist that this must, these areas around these plants must not be embroiled in any kind of risk of an attack. But it's a, it's something we're all, you know, kept awake at night Terrible. worrying about because until this war stops, the very possibility of a catastrophic, you know, outcome at any of these reactors is a re is real. Yes, it's it's absolutely terrifying, and um, um, it should be pointed out. I'm sure many of you know that there's way more radiation in these spent fuel pools than in the reactors themselves. And, you know, we were this far away from the, this fuel pool at Unit 4 at Fukushima from blowing up. They lost, they lost coolant there. They're dropping in coolant from helicopters, for God's sakes. And um, uh, if, God forbid, and you have these diesel, every nuclear plant, ironically, has to be hooked up to the grid so that when they when they when the reactors go down or even when they operate, there's power to keep the spent fuel pools cool. And then you have diesel generators on site for backup. And it is so Mickey Mouse that at Fukushima, they're running out to the parking lot to get car batteries to, to power the uh, to power the the uh, control room. And at, at Zaporizhia, you had Russian soldiers who were taking the diesel fuel out of the backup diesel generators to run their vehicles. I mean, it is really, you know, and God forbid one of those spent fuel pools would blow up. Uh, we're talking the apocalypse here. So Zaporizhia is terrifying. So is California. But um, uh, uh, Justin, you had a hand. Uh, Justin, uh, uh, go ahead. Are you so, as the uh, daughter of a nuclear physicist, I'd like to ask Linda 
where do all the excess electrons go when you run a nuclear power plant, but you don't have a grid to back it? I mean, don't, don't they have to go into uh, like uh, fire if it doesn't have anywhere else to go? It goes into heat. Electrons, they have to go either into resistor banks or lightning, you know, artificial lightning. What, what, what do you think? Well, the, I'm the daughter of a physicist. I'm not a physicist. I want to make that point very clear. Um, but what's happened actually at Zaporizhia, as far as I know, is that they have, and, and I think at several of the other plants in Europe, is that they have they've stopped operating these reactors because the big risk, uh, that's not going to happen if they're not running. So they're not feeding the grid, most of them which is another problem for Ukraine because Ukraine actually relies for 50% of its electricity from its 15 nuclear power plants. So now they're in a situation where they're freezing in the dark, poor access to food and water in a war zone without the support of the electric supply that they would have gotten from nuclear power plants because they're too dangerous to keep operating, which means that they're also not there when you need them most, which is also true, of course, in, in a normal situation, as we've seen in the U US when there's been severe weather events like tornadoes and hurricanes and so forth, from a safety precaution point of view, they have to power down or power off. So they're kind of a liability as soon as anything dramatic happens. It doesn't have to be a war necessarily. It could also just be from climate, but anyway, I, I I know we're getting short of time, Harvey. And you want to talk? No, it's about okay. I, I, so you I was talk about earthquakes, right? <laughs> that, that yes, we're going to get to California in a minute. But uh, not only do they not not only are they not getting the power from Zaporizhia, they have to supply power to Zaporizhia to keep the school the fuel pool school. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's a lose lose. Jeffrey, we'll get to you in a, in a few minutes. You've had some questions, uh, Dave Grun, and then I want to talk about California. Uh, David Gordon, if you'll unmute, um, you look like you're in an attic. Uh, there you go. go. No, you're not unmuted yet. Um, um, so I did have there. No, I did have the opportunity to talk to a state senator in uh, in uh, L.A. on Saturday, and made the point to him, and this is critical. I I don't know if Linda Gunter Linda um, Seeley has joined us, uh, uh, but uh, David, you're good. But let me just say, with as I'm concerned, certainly in the United States, there's not going to be any more big reactors built. Big discussions of the small reactors down the road. The critical issue now is the reactors themselves. Every one of the 92 reactors now operating in the United States is an issue. And these people running around like Oliver Stone saying to support nuclear power, okay, what do you think of Davis Bessey? or what's happening at South Texas or, or Diablo Canyon. It's, this is not an abstract issue. We have 92 radioactive clunkers operating in the United States with an average of 40 years of age. And I can sit here for the next hour and tell you stories about Diablo Canyon specifically, even just unit one, that will make your hair spin on it. Even Carl's hair, for God's sakes. So, <laughs> so, uh, uh, go ahead, Carl, for his opinion. Dave? Yeah, well, I, I worked at a nuclear power plant in Zion, Illinois, which is about 30 miles north of Chicago. It was closed, I believe, in 2000. I worked there uh, 88 to 90. Um, 
But my point is, and you can make it to all these people that say that we can use nuclear power plants uh, in this uh, uh, in this uh, high temperature environment. The problem is a lot of these nuclear power plants are in places where water that cools on it, which is very necessary, gets too hot and therefore they have to shut down during the summer. In fact, that happened, uh, there was a, uh, a drought and uh, high heat, I believe it was in 1988, and some of our plants are, were on, on the um, Mississippi and they had to shut down because of the high heat of the water. That the nuclear power is just a waste. And yeah, you're right, Sluggo, there, there's lots of, of uh, uh, actually at Zion, there is still um, uh, fuel in the fuel pool and also the casts that are outside. Uh, in, so in France, which is supposedly, I love this irony, France is the poster child of nuclear power. They have 56 reactors, standard design, Westinghouse 900 and 1300. And they, everybody was the, the great genius of the French to standardize. Well, now they've got cracks in their pipes and half of the reactors in France are shut. Half of the 56 or more, and they're going into winter. And the great irony is that everybody was yelling at Germany, how crazy are you to shut your 19 reactors? The French have actually shut more reactors than the Germans have because they, they, they're completely different. They had to shut reactors because the rivers were too hot to uh, to cool them. So, uh, Carl, you want to jump in on this? What's happening? They also lose they lose access to water because also the supply of water dries up. You know, and we're, and we're seeing some pretty dramatic uh, examples of that under climate change now. Anyway, I mean, I think that's the whole issue that there's sort of this disconnect between what's actually happening in our world with climate change and the impact that that's going to have on these big generators like nuclear power plants, which rely on you know, million gallons of water a minute, some of the once through cooling systems that they, that's what they draw in. Uh, and it's just not going to be there. So not only is it too hot, so it's dangerous to bring it in, um, but it's also just not there. And that's what happened in, in France too. And the other thing about France is it always has to import nuclear, uh, electricity from other countries in winter because there was a national mandate that all heat had to be electric powered. And so even their fantastic under normal circumstances. And now, of course, it's exacerbated by what's going on in Ukraine. Well, and of course, France is now importing electricity from Germany. France having 56 reactors and Germany now having three, which are about to shut. And France is getting electricity from Germany. Also want to raise my own reason has been big on this. There's three reactors of Palo Verde. There's a lot of, in, in Arizona, there's a lot of uh, press now about the giant water crisis in the Southwest and Palo Verde uh, operates on gargantuan amount, amounts of water. Sooner or later, somebody, and none of the articles that I ever read about the water crisis in the Southwest talk about the water at Palo Verde. Sooner or later, somebody figure out that they're evaporating 27,000 gallons of water a minute and somebody's gonna have to account for that water somewhere. So uh, Carl, as someone in Long Island who's paying for nuclear plants in upstate New York, you wanna jump in on this? We're almost out of time, but I certainly wanna get you back in. Well, it's, it's here in New York State, uh, 
a bailout was uh, put together by uh, former Governor Cuomo. Uh, on the good side, he went along with shutting down Indian Point, uh, but he provided a 12-year surcharge on everybody's electricity bills in New York State and every business's electricity bills. Uh, 12 years of paying $7.6 billion to keep these, these old, uh, uh, truly ancient nuclear plants going. And just let me add one other thing. If anybody on the call is not familiar, and I hope everybody is, talking about asking for disaster, what the Nuclear Rubber Stamp Commission has been doing in recent years is extending the operating life of never seen to, to run more than 40 years because of radiation and brittling the, the metals to 60 years, now 80 years, and discussing 100 years, but certainly 60 and 80 years is uh, rubber stamp after rubber stamp okay on those uh, th those things. And meanwhile, at the same time, uprating these uh, nuclear plants allowed to go on and on and on. Uprating mean uh, to have them run hotter and, and harder, asking for, asking for catastrophe, asking for disaster. It's, it's, real, uh, it's amazing. Uh, David and Tatanka, if you want to chime in on California real quick, we're almost out of time. It's been an amazing discussion. Go ahead, Dave Gurren again. Oh, I want to mention there's a film out. I'm sorry, I'm going to just jump in. There's a film out called Radioactive, The Women of Three Mile Island. And if you have ever heard some idiot say that no one was harmed at Three Mile Island, it is a total lie. I was one of two journalists that went in there after the accident, crazy person that I was, and interviewing people in central Pennsylvania. It was the worst we dropping dead left. A wonderful filmmaker put together a, a film. Uh, she interviewed me. You can see the footage of my interview on the cutting room floor. Uh, but the, uh, the, uh, the, these are interviews with women who were harmed at Three Mile Island. It is absolutely must be seen. Radioactive, the women at Three Mile Island. Make sure you find it and see it. Okay, Tatanka, oh, oh, Dave, Tatanka, Howie. Jeffrey, and then we're going to be out. Go ahead. Dave. I just want to add, uh, in Ohio, we had a political scandal where the First Energy, um, which is actually located in Akron, that's where I live, uh, had, owns uh, Davis Bessie and uh, Perry uh, nuclear plants. And they, with the uh, Speaker of the House time, Larry Householder, uh, uh, funneled $60 million to him. And uh, Unfortunately, it still uh, hasn't been prosecuted, right. uh, though he has been indicted. It's been two years. And yes. uh, yeah, it's just amazing, huh? you know, all the scandal that, that, with that. Thank you. For, the, for those of you who want to purchase the Ohio legislature, uh, $61 million, <laughs> that'll do it. And uh, those guys, you won't get indicted as long as you uh, own nuclear plants. And to get out of jail free. Thank you for that, Dave. Uh, Tatanka. Uh, yeah. Howie. Thank you, Linda, for for talking at the outset about the link to nuclear weapons, which is never talked about. The big picture. I learned in seventy eight, seventy nine from a friend at Stanford Research Institute who was consulting with learned the whole fifty year plan, which was to culminate in the year twenty twenty to twenty thirty that the oil companies intend to own the entire energy field. 
specifically nuclear, wind, et cetera. But to do that, they need to keep these you know, utilities as metering the sun rather than distributed energy. And I think this whole nuclear thing, you know, the phrase, well, it doesn't take a nuclear scientist. I don't know. I think they're just throwing shit in to get more time to get the big the the big uh, the big solar array stuff going for the companies and hope that we don't think about nuclear weapons or make the connection and uh, just was tie up the money so that the big Davos plan can go through the great reset that keeps corporate control of the energy. Either way, we got what we needed when the sun shone down on the Garden of Eden. 